Welcome. I'm, uh, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Press, Politics, and Public Policy. Uh, we have a very distinguished guest today, and I uh, very much appreciate, David, your coming. Uh, David is a, an old friend of Nico's, I believe, mm -hmm. and uh, Nico is uh, someone whose advice we always take about who would really be interesting to hear. Uh, David uh, <coughs> has a history uh, of being involved in cryptography first and then uh, the adaptations of the web to all kinds of, uh, of issues that touch on intelligence and privacy. He's really one of the one of the most authoritative voices and most penetrating voices on this whole thematic area. Something that's getting more and more attention and kind of waxes and wanes as we were saying before. But uh, I would say right now is very much waxing, in part because of the attention Facebook is getting, um, because of what Facebook is, because of the, of the film, uh, but also because I think a lot of people are now viewing the issue as one that, that puts privacy in direct opposition to First Amendment values. Um, David was talking about, before we, uh, before we joined you, that what he wants to do today is not talk about privacy per se, but talk about his, well, I'm going to let you explain what it is that you would like to talk about in terms of the framing, because I think that's important. Let me suffice it to say that David is one who can talk about this issue from the prospect of being uh, an insider, someone who was there and has been there from the very beginning uh, as this has all evolved. David, we're very glad to have you. Thank you. Welcome. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I understand what privacy is, and I know you're all <laughs> either eating or about to eat. But I wanted to be a little interactive at first, and then go into uh, some some words. But can somebody tell me what they think privacy is? And I'm, I genuinely want to know. Please. Well, it starts in with my door at home. Okay. And control over that. Okay. And so I have home where I live and a door, and then the public outside. So it's physical exclusion between It's those physical and, and in control. And okay, I buy that. Um, anybody else? It's a separate psychological space where you can try out your thoughts and ideas without having to share them publicly, and, and you can test them with, without, um, without the whole world holding you responsible for them. So in, I think what you're saying, just to paraphrase, is kind of this bubble of, of thoughts uh, where you're, you can work on your own thoughts before you decide to share them with others. Is that fair? Right. Anybody else? There's one more level out, which is that the others that you share them with would not then repeat them even without your name attached to still others. So thinking of the scraping article in the Wall Street Journal today, for example. Okay. So you're talking about privacy as control over dissemination. Mm -hmm. So for instance, it's just as an example that, uh, that you may want to share information with your doctor, but that doesn't give your doctor the right to share information with someone else. Okay. But let me offer a definition of it that comes at it from the other direction. Mm -hmm. uh, as, you were, as you were asking, it struck me. Privacy to me is that sphere of my personal life that can be invaded. And when it is invaded, I feel 
Uh, I feel that something has been done against my interests and without my permission. It is a pers the personal sphere that, uh, that, that when invaded, <coughs> prompts anger and outrage and a sense of violation. So to you, privacy, you, you, I, I, it's, I'll, it's all the things that that would that, would, that would trigger it. that would trigger that. I mean, it's it's medical records. It's someone knowing what my searches are. Uh, it's Google having an algorithm that 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 defines my research responses based on information they will not explain that has to do with what I've done in the past in terms of Google searches, et cetera, et cetera. It's all kinds of things like that. That 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 when I become aware of them, if they, if they constitute what I would call an invasion of my private space, I feel resentment and anger and it's, it, that it is inappropriate. So you can't define it per se, but you know when it's happened it's because like you've been intruded. Right? Yeah, was it just the steward or whatever? You know it when you see it. But you know, I, the, at the newspaper where I work, we talk about this a lot because public figures are always claiming that we're invading their privacy. They feel, you know, that we're invading their privacy when we don't think we're invading their privacy. That certain things that they're doing or have done are should be in the public sphere. So, I think it's a pretty, well, I you know, a privacy is some somewhat in the eye of the beholder. No, I, I don't think there's any question about it. And it doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that privacy is the only value or the value that should, you know. But Just because I feel invaded doesn't mean that if I've done something criminal, mm -hmm. you know, it's not uh, in the public's interest to know about it. I well, th there is there is a, a very uh, big issue on that about registered sex offenders, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, registered sex offenders in many states in the United States, or sex offenders that have done their time and been released are forced to register, and in some cases are forced to basically, I guess, introduce themselves to their neighbors and say, hey, I'm a sex offender. Which, which you know, hardly seems you know, in line with the idea that you pay your time, do your time, and get it over with. So, um, and it, it almost, it, what's interesting though to me is that you all have, um, you're all approaching from different ends, and they're all valid. I, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called <coughs> Privacy Lost, and I, I had what I called the seven sins of privacy, and you guys have named <laughs> almost every one of them. And I had one more, which is loss of dignity. And to me, that was a kind of privacy where um, if, if you're part of the, if you're, if you get trapped in our uh, America's social service system, for instance, I would imagine that you lose a lot of dignity during the process. So it's not just giving up information, it's giving up information in a way where you feel you have no choice. And uh, I felt the same way when I was uh, uh, an enlisted guy in the Navy at boot camp. And we went in, and the first thing I saw, I was, I was from a small, I was from Pittsburgh, and it was a fairly uh, protected upbringing, and, and, and the, the toilets had no, um, no doors. And I said, wow, I wonder what those are for. And, and I learned. So that, that's kind of a dignity thing. And, um, and I know recently, like a lot, of other, a, lot, a lot of other men my age, I you know, had some prostate issues, and I went in, and the first time I had to deal with that, and I immediately, you know, and I talked to my urologist, and he said, dignity stays at the door. So, and, and he was right, and it just got worse from there. But, <laughs> but, but, but privacy is, is, technology gets a bad rap for privacy, but, but I, one of the things I, I wanted to, to talk about a little bit is about what's underlying that. I, I don't think privacy means anything anymore, and I don't, and I don't mean it's dead either, because I'm not sure it was ever alive. I, I think 
privacy was a, a nebulous term. Um, the, the whole, if anyone knows the, the background of what little there, well, like the word privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution at all. Um, the, 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 uh, the basis for privacy in the legal system comes from Justice Brandeis, who was mortally offended that his, uh, his daughter's uh, debutante party's guest list got, got in the Boston world and, and basically took every opportunity he could get to, to uh, interpret the Constitution in a way that would get back at the media for revealing that information. And, that, and there, was, there was a number of uh, inter constitutional judicial interpretations of the Constitution for privacy, which is where, um, which is where what few privacy laws we have come from. We have some very specific privacy laws like HIPAA, which is the medical thing, but by the time they've gone through all the, all the lobbying interests in Congress, and you know, and I and I, I understand the necessity for lobbying, but the time they go through, they're they're useless. If it doesn't help us as consumers particularly much, so I've spent a lot of time talking to congressmen, senators, and and uh, a number of other people about privacy, and um, and what I like to talk to them about is that it's not privacy; it's a, it's about identity, and it's identity which is transformed uh, by both the change in information and the change in interactivity. So it's kind of the three eyes, if you will. So I, so going to those two eyes at the end of the sentence for a moment, the informational change and the interactivity change. Interactivity, you know, I think we're talking social networking is an obvious example. I mean, tech, and this is where technology augments change or trend causes change. Um, you, can, you can exchange information very, very fast now. Um, you can interact with other people, and and, it, and in many ways, digital communication has is, if you think of it as kind of the third big uh, form of communication after oral and written, um, it, in some ways it has the worst of both worlds because it has the uh, the impulsivity of oral communication and the permanence of written communication. <laughs> so it, you're just you're encouraged. I mean, you go on Facebook, you go on, on Twitter, it's far worse, and you get on there and you start saying stuff. And then, and then at some point you go, oh my God, that's going to be there forever. Um, and, and it will be. It absolutely will be. And just because it doesn't show up on the internet, uh, if anyone doesn't know this, there are at least two major companies, one of them being Amazon, who has bought, uh, bought uh, a, a system called the Wayback Machine a long time ago that records, takes snapshots in the internet at periodic intervals throughout the day, so they have it, uh, even if nobody else has it. Uh, so, if, if you if you said it somewhere, it's going to come back. Yes. Except if it happened before 1996 or something. Ah, that's probably not true anymore. Because the internet, the, digi the, the digitization of America is moving in two directions in time. It's moving slower backwards, but it's moving it, uh, very obviously. It's moving completely uh, inclusively forward, but it is moving backwards. I know. I mean, I was, um, I was. You guys know what Usenet is? It's like, a, okay. So I was involved in. Explain in, if you would. Okay, Usenet <laughs> was early an, an early internet thing where you could talk about subject matter, and there was like uh, there were moderated forums and unmoderated forums, and this goes back to the '70s and the '80s, and and, uh, and if you wanted to say, talk about something really weird, it was in the what was called the alt branch. So it'd be like alt dot something something something. So I was involved in a group called like Alt Barney the Dinosaur Die Die Die, which I thought was great because I really hated Barney the Dinosaur. I was raising a bunch of little kids. They liked Barney. I thought Barney was insipid and telling my kids bad things when I was out of the room. 
So I thought it was funny, and you know, and I, and, but I used my own name, and you know, I figured, well, who's going to care? Well, now all that old archives is coming back, and you know, now I'm I'm a grandparent, and I'm respectable, and I have to live with saying things about a purple dinosaur. So, you know, it could have been a lot worse, right? So um, I, I think you have to assume that everything comes out. I think I think in today's world, I think I think as far as technology changing information. I think you have to assume that every single piece of information in the world, whether it's digital or analog, is probably, if not recoverable today, that's just an accident and it will be recoverable at some point. And um, we were, uh, my wife and I were hiking in Bhutan last year, and we were, I mean, we were at the Tiger's Nest Monastery, it's like 13 and a half thousand feet up, and there was a monk with like an iPhone, and he's <laughs> like twirling the prayer wheel, and he's like, texting his buddy <laughs> on the other end. And, and, and I have a, the picture of this, and it was the most, you know, <laughs> surreal thing. But, but I mean, and, and, you know, it would have been a great Apple commercial. It's really too bad that Steve Jobs wasn't there, because he would have loved it. But, but that's the world today. I mean, I travel a lot. I mean, we've seen uh, technology in the Amazonian jungle. We've seen it, you know, in the May, we, we took a boat up the Mekong Delta. Everybody had, like, uh, uh, Wi-Fi antennas, and I was like, you know, we, we were on this little little riverboat doing the Vietnam, uh, during the Apocalypse Now thing up the Mekong Delta. And there were like 12 or 20 SSIDs as you're going up there. It was amazing. We were on the top of Mount Washington um, a couple months ago. There was there were over 200 SSIDs that you could see from the top of the mountain. So it's pervasive it, and it's cheap. The, the cost of, of adding, you know, the interactive infrastructure to an area is, you know, it's hundreds of dollars. That's why, like, when hotels charge, it's, I get really resentful because I know, <laughs> I know it's not costing $15 an hour, right? It's, it's not much. And, and, and everything can be, can be digitized. I mean, and, and it's very easy. You know, I, we've gone through a period in the last 30 years that I don't think most of us noticed, but it was the conversion of analog things to digital things. And, and you know, you think about this, this always happened. We just didn't notice it. Like, you know, like um, like the word knot when you're going like so many knots on a sailboat was because you would have a rope and it would have knots at every so many intervals and you would throw the rope over and based on how many knots got wet you would know you were going four knots or five knots or six knots. And that's still kind of what, uh, you know, what speedometers and odometers and, uh, and various meters do. They're converters of analog to digital. So. But that's all, that's done, right? I mean, that's all done. Most of the, the analog stuff is digital now. I mean, you look at things like, um, you look at uh, cameras. You know, I remember as a kid, I, I got my dad's camera from the Korean War. It was like 40 years old. It was a single lens reflex camera. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't great, but it, it was okay. The lenses might not have been as good as something I could have bought new, but it was marginally acceptable. It wasn't that different than what, than what he had when he used it. Well, you buy a camera today, then go back in three years, and then it's going to be like it's going to be like a big joke. It's like it's going to be like Austin Powers walking around with you know a cell phone this big that looks like a shoebox or something. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just had a question about something that you said earlier, which is that uh, we should assume, or that it's the fair thing to assume, or that mm -hmm. it's prudent to assume that everything that we're saying that we have said is being recorded for eternity and that is legible to other people and has the potential to come back and haunt us. Potentially. Potentially. I wanted to, to just ask what you thought the implications of that were for self-censorship, the pervasive self-censorship that would potentially prevent us from experimenting with thoughts which might not be ready to be shared with the public, but um, 
are, still need a social audience in order to uh, graduate from an incubational state into something which can be shared with uh, somebody in a more formal state. A actually, that's what got me into this in the first place. The um, it was exactly that worry because I believe I, I was a single parent. I raised five kids, including four daughters. So um, I uh, I've had a lot of experience with children, and and I think you need a lot of room to make mistakes, and that's kind of what you're talking about, right? I mean, you need you need room to make maybe bad decisions or choices, and uh, and I, I keep thinking about. Um, you know the pr the problem with professional politicians today, where where they're you know they've been you know scrutinized and you know like you know like Kerry you know like you, you know some people saying he shot himself in the leg and I mean I mean you couldn't even defend yourself against that I mean imagine some of the other things you can't defend yourself against so I wonder today if I were if I were 16 today and and I was in high school and I wanted to get into Harvard I would be pretty goddamn careful what I put on my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. I think I would be extremely careful what I put on my Facebook page. I saw an article recently that says something like 65 percent of corporate <coughs> recruiters look up Facebook pages when they hire. I think that number is probably higher than that. I don't even know of a case recently where somebody hires and doesn't look at the Facebook page because it's so <coughs> easy. So what it has is, I think, a chilling effect on on what you know. Not to wave the flag too much, but I think on what makes America great. I mean, America is a, is a great country where you can screw up, recover, and then be successful. And we still have the tolerance to be able to screw up, <coughs> recover, and be successful we when, now. you know, as human beings, we're not born fully formed. It takes a long time for us to constantly reinvent ourselves. And secondly, uh, we're not, we don't know what the future is going to be like. So if we know that everything that we're doing now is for some hypothetical future audience, how are we supposed to know who, who we are meant to perform to? Well, I think what one thing that could happen out of this would be just massive conformity. Um, I mean, that, that's the obvious thing. I mean, you know, and I could name a couple of cultures, Japanese, for instance, where, where, where there is um, at least a public level of conformity that's greater than that of the United States. But, but it may, it, we may turn out to be, you know, sort of, a, uh, we may move into a Victorian society where there was this superficial level of conformity and it was actually you know, all sorts of havoc was going on underneath <laughs> the surface that they didn't teach you about or didn't teach me about anyway. So, you know, maybe you know, maybe that's what what's gonna happen. But I mean Isn't there always also the possibility that we will just have a different standard of judging mistakes? Different tolerance level. Yeah, I think so. I I'd like to believe that. But I mean for instance, I guess this like Chris O'Donnell, who is a witch. Um, not a witch anymore. Well, what I mean is, I don't she know, used to be a witch. She's I think no longer a witch. That if that that kind of thing was not sufficient to do her in, if she's done herself in, she's done herself in for all kinds of things. Uh, maybe that contributed. But I think there's a kind of like, oh, well, you know. I mean, in a state like Delaware, I don't think that that really is the thing that would do her in Alabama. Maybe, but I mean, it's 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 a. There is a kind of. A, I mean, I think it's been kind of interesting because. These things are popping up. All these things, like people falsifying their military records and things that are much more serious than just saying something stupid on on the web. Well, there, there's a line, though. I mean, there's a line between doing something that's socially acceptable that you choose to remain private, and then doing something that's criminal that you choose to remain okay. private. And and I mean, that, that's a pretty fine line. Right. Also, the laws change. So, for instance, I mean, when you know when I went to school in, in the 70s. I mean, you know, we all smoke pot. 
I mean, it was it was completely culturally acceptable. I don't know if it was legal or not. I mean, it wasn't legal. It was decriminalized to the point where it might as well have been legal. But yet, that caused me trouble for years to come on polygraphs because I had to admit it. In fact, my um, um, one of my daughter's boyfriends is a fireman in Virginia, and he smoked. I mean, I think he really only smoked pot once, and he can't get into the fire department because he was dumb enough to admit it. So. I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where they have that line about admission, and and, and that's just that. Now, now let's let's go a little. Let's let's say you you accept my supposition that all data is is knowable. Before we get go to ahead. exactly that, I just okay. want to make something get something sure. clear in my own mind. Are you talking about data that you know has gone through the click the button and send it somewhere? No. Or are you talking about somebody who keeps a personal journal on his computer and does not send it to anybody? Is that something that falls into this area that you say is public? Uh, well, that I say is public? No, that is, that is accessible. Except, well, like, that's different. P public implies uh, acceptance and tolerance, and, and I'm not... No, I mean, I mean that, 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 that a that someone who wanted to find out what I wrote in my journal on my computer yesterday could go into my computer rather easily and get it. Yes, I could. It's actually, it's, and Nico could too. So just, but, that sending it doesn't really change anything. Well, the, you know, a lot of the Monica Lewinsky stuff was never actually sent. Um, much of the stuff that Star got was when he subpoenaed her computer and they were emails that she had written to Clinton but never actually sent. And those, all the really bad ones, and I'm not going to go into the details, but <laughs> I think most of us remember what they were, most of those weren't actually sent. And you, my, my supposition is that you think Starr knew that before he subpoenaed them because somebody had gone in there and looked already. Uh, I think he thought that there would be something. She kept the dress. I mean, you know, there was... Well, what I mean is that, that <laughs> what you're saying is you could go into my personal computer easily. Yes, if I had a physical access to it or network access to it. But, but actually, I want to go back to your, your previous question because I think it's actually far worse than... You're talking about the difference between voluntary computer access and involuntary. I'm talking about everything in the world. So, like, you guys, uh, they have like easy passes or speed passes up here on the toll yes. roads, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now you know that, for instance, they, they clock those and they can give and do give speeding tickets. They do it down, down in the mid Atlantic states. So, they, they monitor the time you went on and off the exit and then they do the math. And if you had well, to go, they've been doing that right from the start. Yeah, they've been yeah. doing it right from the beginning. The New Jersey nobody, seems to, nobody seems to know that. And and and, it, and if you do the math, and you had to go 85 miles an hour, you know, to get to Rutgers from here, then you're going to get the ticket. And you might get two tickets because you might get one in both states. And I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Everything's a sensor. And and as the analog to, to digital conversion continues. You know, I was talking before about cameras. You know, cameras used to move very slowly in technological improvement. Now they move very fast. And and as cameras, for instance, become digital, we also, and I, I don't want to go too far off the subject on this, but we also become even more of a disposable consumer society than we are now because nobody wants a five-year-old camera anymore. You don't hand a camera down to your son or daughter the way you used to. TV sets, I mean, you, you've, I mean we all know 
people in my age group or older, you know, I remember, you probably remember the you know, TV tube testers mm -hmm. in the drugstores. Yeah. yeah, well, you, you can't do that anymore. In fact, you can't get money to fix anything anymore. It is almost always cheaper to throw something out than, than to fix it. And, and, and you even deal with the vendors that way. Well, all of these things have data, and that data is going into junk piles. So that's a kind of data. You have network sensors that have data, you know, like uh, street cameras, you know, on the street lights. I'm sure this campus is, is, is patrolled very thoroughly by, by digital sensors. And it's just, yeah. <coughs> on that data, I mean, you're, they're collecting more and more data from you know, this proliferation of sort of sensors, mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Um, <coughs> as real-time analytics improves, how quickly do you see um, you know, queries on that data shifting to real-time interpretations and sort of distribution of usable information uh, versus traditionally sort of historical queries on databases. Mm, well, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, there's a big shift coming and it's coming quickly. I'm just curious how... We're not there We're not there yet. Uh, let me try to paraphrase that question because I'm not sure everybody understood it. You're, you're talking about the difference between uh, like a, a person in a room with 4,000 monitors having to watch the camera, watch the monitor, and, and something that's predictive enough to where it's where it's sort of automatically picking up on right, it, right? that's the, what you're referring where the, the to. The query is sort of predefined and it's waiting for that information to come through and then distributed into some okay, other. Okay, well, there's a third level <laughs> that's much scarier than, than I, I think we're almost at the second point. But let me tell you about the third level, just to really um, worry you. The third level is when you have artificial intelligence routines making predictive guesses based upon past transactional histories. This is going on today. So, in, in uh, like for instance, um, uh, the Patriot Act allowed the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to collect information from booksellers like Amazon.com. So, they could very easily, you know, you know how like you walk in someone's apartment and you look at their CD collection, you look at their books, and you kind of, even though you don't admit it, you sort of have this idea of what they're really like. Okay, well. Now imagine you're a really, and you're a big computer program, and you have a much better idea what they're like based on statistical uh, uh, comparisons. So you bought a bunch of books, like you bought the Koran, you bought you know a couple of chemistry books, and kaboom! The next thing you know, you're on the don't fly list. That's going on today. So we're, we've moved beyond just simply the collection of data to we move to an inferential. Uh, in inference of, of data, which I think is far right, more frightening. It's even, it's even worse than that. The software that they've installed into all public libraries in the United States uh, allows for librarians or any third party that has access to, to the system to not only see what people have borrowed, but what they're even considering borrowing and how they browse through the catalogs themselves. What you even glance at, no matter how long you've looked at it, becomes a part of your record, just like the book that you purchased from Amazon. So, so what's happening, what, what this means is, it means that what you're thinking and what you may do someday is actually now being evaluated. It's kind of like Minority Report, you know, the Spielberg movie. But, but it, it's, it's not, this isn't science fiction, this is very real. I mean, we could write this program today. And, and, and you, can, you can kind of blame, it's not just technology, it's really sort of 9-11 because, <coughs> I, mean, I mean, there's two ways when you're doing uh, counter espionage, there's two ways you can deal with it. One is you can wait till something happens and then punish the person who did it. And the other is you can predict it before it happens and stop them from doing it. 
but the amount of information you need for predictive intelligence is immense. You know, and, and it's one thing when there are people who are maybe, you know, xenographically, demographically, racially different in some measurable, discernible way, but then you look at things like the Oklahoma City Federal Building bombing, and, you know, how would you have spotted those people? I mean, they were terrorists just as much as the 9-11 terrorists. So, I, I know I'm raising a lot of issues, I, I'm not giving a lot of answers, but it's, it's sort of, it's interesting to talk about, and you're all here, so you must have well, some interest. Let me ask you, if, if, you were, if you were determined to keep some privacy, how would you do that? I, I personally, <laughs> um, I, I, I would, I, I, don't th I don't think that any normal human being can go off the grid today. I worked in an article uh, last year, uh, it actually won some kind of award for popular science, and I was the expert, and a reporter tried to disappear in San Francisco for one week without being spotted. She was completely unsuccessful. I had her wrapping a scarf around her face so facial sensors wouldn't spot her. I told her she had to use cash. I told her she couldn't use a credit card. She wasn't able to rent cars. She wasn't able to get hotel rooms. She, uh, she was eating in McDonald's every day. She was absolutely thoroughly miserable after about three days. It was just a horrible experience, but it's a fun article. And um, <laughs> but because I didn't have Depending to, on your idea of fun. I didn't, I didn't have to do it. I was just the advisor. She, she'd call me up from a payphone. She'd say, what do I do now? And I'd say, well, you better hide your face because there's a, there's a camera 15 feet from you at the street corner. So, and she did it for a week. So I don't think you can walk off the grid. I actually, I know what I used to believe, and I think I still believe this, which is that I think we should create pseudonymous identities and try to use them online for certain kinds of purposes. I think that helps a lot. Um, if, if, I were, if, if I were a student today, for instance, and I would probably create some kind of an identity early on in life, and maybe more than one, and use them for different purposes. And I would keep persistence on those identities. You know, if I, want, if I want to be an online gaming and then I want to be a Wall Street lawyer, I don't want them knowing I used to know as a level 10 elf or something. It's just emba it's embarrassing and it's none of their goddamn business, right? I mean, it's just, it's, I want to keep that separate and the best way of doing it is to maintain some sort of segmentation on identity. But how can you in this environment effectively do that? Well, you can so far. I mean, you can go... It's not that hard to, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty, plenty of people here who know how to do this. I mean, it's not that hard to create an online identity. You get a Hotmail account, you get a Gmail account, um, and then you can build up a layer of identity from there. You join groups using that email address as your identifier, and then you can... Um, don't you need a credit card? Don't you need... You know, as long as you don't buy anything big, no. You can, as long as you don't, as long as you don't touch something tangible, um, in fact, this is just a wacky idea, but I've had this thought for years, which is that, that microtransactions, which is a big problem in my, in my business, I believe that that's going to be dealt with by, by giving, giving you digital goods. Like the price of a song is like below a buck, well, and then it went up again because of Apple, and now it's, it's like it's a buck twenty-nine, then it's going to go down again. But, the, um, but I don't see why a, a pseudonymous identity couldn't be rewarded with a digital token that would enable you to buy a song. So um, we could do this now. I could send you, I've gifted stuff to my kids on Amazon and iTunes, and I could send you a, a cryptographic token 
that you could then cash in and, and buy something, a movie, a song, a book. And do it through this identity. And you could do it through that identity. Whenever I talk to anybody from Congress about this, they are terrified. <laughs> and they, they hate this idea. Because, number one, it means it, it creates another economy, I mean, another currency and economy, because it, it does. Um, so you have this sort of underground digital currency thing going on. So that's one problem. And the second problem is government uh, fundamentally doesn't like the idea that they can't track things when they need to, at least law enforcement anyway. I mean, even, even if they're, they're libertarian at heart, they want the ability, I think, to, in a pinch, be able to, to look at historical transactions. And they don't want to have a position. There was a really good case with uh, RIM, the company that does BlackBerry, if anybody's familiar with this. They had a bunch of problems in, in the UAE recently where they were almost forced out uh, because, you know, they talked around it, but basically it's because they wouldn't let the government have backdoors to the cryptography to be able to read people's Blackberries. So, I mean, that's that's where the issue tends to pop up. Mm -hmm. I, we have a, a lot of people with questions <coughs> right now. Yeah, and so, sure. why, yes, why don't you start us? Okay. Um, I just wanted to make an observation that uh, there, there are there is an alternate economy emerging in the area of how to how can we manage our web footprints. Companies like Google and Amazon, mm -hmm. if you pay money to them, good amount of money, they will ensure that some of the information you have shared in the public domain does not appear. So do you, do you trust them? No, I do not. But <laughs> at least, like, at least to some extent. <coughs> they they have to follow. They have to provide this utility to their consumers to some extent. They because they have made a promise. So at least if they try to violate their own promise, there are implications, legal implications to that. Do you do you know about the history with the wiretapping in AT and T during the second Bush administration? Mm -hmm. Because the telephone companies completely cooperated with illegal wiretapping of consumers, and nothing happened to them at all. And um, the Bush administration, and even the Obama administration, protected them to some extent. So I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I agree with the idea, but I don't. I don't believe there'll be any retribution. No, I think of course, if the request is coming from the government sector, the, the government itself, State Department, that the company has to make that information available despite having made a promise to the client, then of course they have to. But say, like, you know, other members of public cannot pull that information about you and me just like that. So at, we gain a degree of control. Yeah, I, I, I accept that. Actually, let me generalize what you said, because I think there's something, there's a really uh, interesting nugget uh, there, which is that as capitalism may save us, I guess that's really what you're saying, right? Yes. As, as, as people realize that this is a problem, People may find that they can make money by helping us, and, and that's what we maybe that's how we get saved. That's a good capitalist answer, anyway. <laughs> Were there, sir? Well, I've been looking at this for since the internet began. I was there. There's the act of security, but I've always felt that if you make a cloud and lots of data and lots of information. The important stuff is in there and someone really has to work hard to find a profile or something. So don't worry, just have a fog out there of five or six credit cards, several emails, blah, 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 lots of stuff out there. 
then they won't find you unless they really want. You know, it costs much. Fifteen years ago, I would I would be nodding my head yes, and now I'm nodding my head no, because I don't believe that anymore. I did some consulting work with um, one of the major credit card companies a couple of years ago, and during the process of the consulting, it came out that they had a number of psychologists on staff who were looking at buying patterns to determine when people were depressed. And they were very, very good at that. And this was this was back in the ni late 90s, early early 00s. And they and they were looking. I mean, honest to God, they were looking at like who was buying like Haagen Dazs ice cream, like when they didn't normally buy it, and they buy like a bunch of ice cream or other, you know, like they buy like lean cuisines five days, and then all of a sudden they like pick out an ice cream. And they go, aha, they're depressed, and then they hit them with a credit card offer. Okay, so that's the level of inference engine that's being used right now. Um, I believe things are a lot more sophisticated than they ever were. I think that, and I credit card credit card companies and credit bureaus are actually a very good example of people who are very good at cutting through the noise to get to the heart of it and doing it really fast. And TSA is getting pretty good too. So I, I'm not sure I agree with that. John, are cookies stoppable? Because they're one of the most annoying things. You buy a book on the Civil War on Amazon, and all of a sudden you get. Uh, things from other people, whether it's toys, old yeah, that is or, obnoxious. Uh, it's, but is there any way? To, I mean, cookies to me are one of the huge invasions of privacy because um, you know you know you can turn those off, right? Yeah. How? Ask me okay. afterward. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can possible to eliminate, but you don't want to because then you lose the good thing. Well, but, but it's, <laughs> this, is, this is this is the whole point. Technology is is agnostic. It's yeah. it's it's the double-edged sword, and it's also Damocles. You know, right? And it's hanging over your head at the same time. The um, everything that's good about the internet and technology also has a bad side, and and I think it's sort of our maturity as human beings and how we handle that. So cookies are okay. Now I should also point out, not to be geeky about this, but there's a thing called HTML5, and one of the problems, which is coming in now, one of the problems with HTML5 is there's something called super cookies, which are far, wor far, far worse. And if you don't like cookies, you're going to hate super cookies. <laughs> so there may not be much. What, what, are, what are super cookies? What will they do? They maintain more information, and they, they maintain instead of being st cookies are stateless, so they don't have any sense of history. Um, HTML5 cookies have a sense of history and transactional background. Speaking of stateless, I'm in German where there's a, a very different culture of keeping data private. Um, how do you think this will play out in an international world? Mm -hmm. Everything I've set up till now has been fairly American-centric. Um, the Europeans in general, and Germany specifically, has always had a, a much more finely honed sense of privacy. Uh, for many, many years, the European unions had a, uh, a safe harbor for American companies where, where they're not held to the same standard as European companies. In Europe, generally speaking, you have to opt in before they're allowed to advertise to you. In America, there's no laws whatsoever, as I think we all know. And, and they get, um, and they get uh, the safe harbor, which nobody seems to want to touch. Um, I think Germany's got cultural, cultural and historic reasons for w wanting to maintain this sense of privacy. I have several German friends and we've had long talks about it. So I, I think that's an issue. And France has a similar issue. Now when you get to the, some, of the, some of the Asian cultures, it's, it's the other way around. So, sir. Um, 
we've been discussing kind of the, the negative effects of, of technology kind of taking over our lives. Uh -huh. I wonder if you could speak to some of the positive effects maybe in, mm -hmm. in terms of national security. Yeah, from, um, well, we haven't had a terrorist attack really since 9-11, okay, and, and I, I got to believe that somebody, somewhere, there's a lot of unsung heroes that are probably doing a pretty good job. Um, the, the same, the same things I've been kind of complaining about, or at least pointing out the problems, also are the same things that make the job of cybersecurity a little bit easier. It's a lot, it's a lot harder though, um, because of the multicultural aspect. So one of the first problems, um, I have several friends that do cybersecurity work, and and one of the first problems was, um, oddly enough, it was name spelling. This is a horrible problem, right? Because of homonyms and, you know, in, 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 in certain parts of the world, the name, you know, Muhammad is, is, is so common that it's not an indicator of anything. And, and they thought it was for a long time. So you had to find new, new ways of dealing with it. Um, one of the things about the internet is the internet when, in fact, technology in general is a really, really big um, Archimedean lever, and it gives you it gives you the ability to move the world. So, you know, I don't know what I don't know what it cost the 9/11 terrorists to take over those planes, but it could have been a lot of money. It's a couple thousand bucks for tickets, a couple of box cutters. I mean, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of cash, and they they leveraged <coughs> United States uh, technology against us, and were able to destroy buildings based on using our technology. And, and knowing enough about it to be able to use it. Cybersecurity, I think, is allowing us to stop exactly that kind of a problem so that we aren't having our own technology levered against us. So. Do you happen to know who was behind the uh, Iranian uh, virus? The big debate over, what was it called? The Stuxnet. Stuxnet. If you I, all I don't, don't know about this, this is a <clears throat> this is a, said to be a very, very dangerous virus that is emanating from Iran that could be used very much in a targeted way, as I understand it, to do great, great damage. Well, I know every government, every major government has a group of people whose jobs are to either hack things, create viruses, or figure out how to break viruses. This has been going on for a long time. Um, could very well have been one of those, and it could have gotten out of hand. There's a there's a term that computer hackers use called script kiddies, and a script kitty is someone who takes a very sophisticated piece of work by a by a virus manufacturer, and then adds a different payload onto it, something either benign or malicious, and uh, it could have been something like that. That would be kind of my guess is that a government did it, and it got a little bit out of hand. And how dangerous do you think it is? Yeah, it could be pretty dangerous. Could be could be real dangerous. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing we really haven't had a really bad problem yet. Um, and you know, when when you think about it, you I mean, an incident or a cyber problem? A cyber problem. Um, I was on I was on um, Clinton's Y two K committee rep uh, representing the internet, and um, it was terrifying. Um, when we realized exactly how vulnerable all the interconnected things were, and I'm not talking about the internet, I'm talking about like power stations that whose control structures were run with, uh, again, not to be too technical, but TCP/IP control structures. So basically, 
this part of the grid talks to this part of the grid by having a call up on a modem, and now, of course, it goes across the internet and, and says some uh, computer thing and causes the grid to go up or go down or whatever. Well, that's how the world works today. That's how power grids work. That's how telephones work. That's how hospital systems and first responders work. So a sufficiently dangerous cybersecurity attack has the ability to, to uh, threaten those lines of communication. And there's kind of this fog of war thing that happens in systems. So when a system gets sufficiently corrupt, it just stops. And hopefully that won't happen. Well, I said hopefully. <laughs> I started with hopefully. I, I'm not as pessimistic as this sounds, but this is kind of a gloomy topic. Um, were there other questions? Um, I come from Venezuela where the government owns the uh, telephone company. Yes. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Chavez has his own agenda. He has a very smart group of technicians working, to what extent can you have this whole control over the whole population through his uh, through technology? One well, thing is happening here, too. If, if, there is a, if there is a person in this room who doesn't believe that if you pick up the word of the, any phone and say, you know, terrorist explosion, and you're not being recorded somewhere, you're insane. I mean, every, every word in every major country in the world spoken into any telephone and I had no classified knowledge of this, but I, I, I would certainly do it if I were there, and I would have to believe they're doing it. So I would believe that any word said and every word on the Internet is being monitored, and then the only question goes back to the other issue, which is the analytics and whether they're able to actually do anything with it. So, and, then, and then you get to a real issue, which we haven't even talked about, which is morality. Yeah. That's the real issue. So what, and, and uh, you know, every country is... Well, yeah, like... The United States was, was built on, on certain values, and, and in my personal opinion, which I've been mostly keeping out of this, but I think we've lost track of that. And I, I think we've lost track of it for a number of reasons. So we've substituted the law for a value system. And when you're dealing in uncharted territory like privacy and technology, it would help to start with values and then create the laws based upon what the conformant view of values are, and it's happening the other way around, which is why it isn't working. That's just a personal editorial comment. But, but you know, you say that and you think, well, <clears throat> the, the uh, atomic bomb was developed and dropped long before the Internet. The Germans killing of six million Jews. You know, morality uh, is something that is always supposedly there, never has been there, never will be. So. I don't really see where it comes into the privacy discussion. Well, it could in the sense that, like, like they, they have these Millennium Body Scanners at the airport. And um, they basically reveal what you look like nude, more or less. And if you, kind, if you felt that they wouldn't show it to anybody, perhaps you would, if, the, if you felt legally or morally even that they wouldn't show it, you might feel safer about them using the device. I remember talking to a, a Scottish friend of mine who grew up in a small fishing village in Scotland for many, many, many generations that lived there, and there are only 30 or 40 families. And I said, well, you guys must know everything about everybody that goes on. And he goes, yeah, but we didn't talk about it. And, and they had this 
value idea that, that in fact he was lying. They actually talked about it incessantly, but they, <laughs> but they, but they pretended they didn't talk about it, and they created a, a cultural grab, like like you know Japanese you know Ryoans, however you pronounce that, the village ends with the the paper, the shoji screens, you know where where you must see things, and you just don't talk about it. So that would be what maybe that's not exactly morality the way you meant it, but that's. To me, if we had cultural norms and we had some accepted sense of morality of, of what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate, I mean, that sounds very Victorian. Maybe that's maybe that's another way to go. Tracy, I'm sorry, it's late. Maybe this has already been covered, but going back to the question from Venezuela, if it, it may, be, I'm sure that, that uh, if you get on the on the phone and you say terrorist attack or whatever, that it's being recorded somewhere. But there is a uh, how confident are you that are, that are you that they are able to make sense of this or to find it? I mean, there is an enormous amount of stuff that NSA gathers and always has, and we already know from 9/11 that a lot of it just that it doesn't matter that they're gathering because there's no one there to, to catch it. All, all I can say, I mean, I, I worked most of my career. I worked at NSA for many years. I did collection on submarines and a number of other places, um, and then I spent years building search engines. So. Uh, I believe if they wanted to, and they certainly would want to, they can they can make sense of everything. But the hardest thing is an, is it's it's a, an ad hoc query. It's far easier when you have a, the query the query quite criterion defined in advance. So once you're looking for something, it's a lot easier to find. But the other thing to, to remember, though, to add on to this is the huge difference between digital and analog. The overhead and storage of digital media is, is so low that it's no longer an economic stoppage. So you can save digital data forever at a very low cost. So no one, I don't know if anybody throws anything digital out anymore. So, so anything that they can digitize, they're going to save. And then they can go back and as the query system gets better, then they can rerun the query system against it. So, you know, you know not, I, I, I've tried very hard, hard not to use this word. But if a McCarthyism, but if another, if another, you know, HUAC kind of thing started up, in, in, in for some other reason, it would be relatively easy to go backwards, and then even though they couldn't, you're quite right, they can't make sense of it at the time. They could go backwards retrospectively and then run those queries against them. Do you know anything about Venezuela? Pardon? Do you know anything about Venezuela? The situation there? No. Charlie. But doesn't that come to the question of contemporaneous interpretation of data? Um, first of all, you have a problem of contemporaneous uh, interpretation. Um, the stuff may be coming in, it may be digitized, it may be saved forever, but if you're looking to prevent some kind of terrorist attack, uh, you need contemporaneous interpretation. And secondly, um, the bad guys, uh, to use the term loosely, uh, deal in, in cryptic code now, don't they? They don't deal, they don't get on the phone and say, we're going to launch a terrorist attack. And, and take not, out the, uh, the Empire State Building anymore. Yeah. It's all done in code, which it seems to me is awfully difficult, um, no matter how much data you <coughs> Can I address that? Because it doesn't matter the words that you use any longer. The type of profiling, in terms of the precision that they can achieve, can be measured simply by the patterns of communication, how often you call somebody. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, when they're trying to... But you have to know then who you're looking for. No, no, no you, you don't. don't. No, you don't. You I, just simply I, need to search for a signature. Say, look for an individual who only makes phone calls less than 30 seconds and who makes them 
uh, in the 10 minutes after an after an uh, improvised um, device goes off it's, in Baghdad? It's called, it's called traffic analysis. I was trained in this years and years ago. And, and traffic analysis means it's a way of determining who the participants in a conversation are without actually knowing who they are because of certain repetitive patterns. So if, you know, back in the Soviet days, uh, if, like, you know, Boris called Grigori every Friday at 8.30 on 233 megahertz, and then all of a sudden it's Alexei calling Vladimir at the same frequency at the same time, guess what? We just broke their code. And, and that's how t traffic analysis works. So there's names for all these different diagrams, and it's, it's not hard to do. It's a, I mean, I, I could break most of the Soviet order of battle in about 20 minutes after a code change. That was pretty common. Yeah, we used to do this in Vietnam. But, I, but I, I come back to I come back to the you're, you're talking now about preventative, mm -hmm. uh, preventative analysis. I, you, sure, you know if if you find the same guy is making a call within 10 minutes after every explosion in Iraq, okay. I'm, well, I guess maybe you prevent further ones. But I'm talking about major attacks, which would presumably be a one-time only occurrence. How you how you go after that? I'm, I'm just I, I guess really what I'm asking is how NSA basically approaches this, how they do it. I think uh, they have to assume that everybody's a potential terrorist. I mean, honestly, I mean I know that sounds awful, but I don't know how. If, if it were me doing it, that's what I would do. How, how difficult would it be if you happen to be a terrorist to defeat it? Um, it would be pretty easy today because, uh, as you were saying, they speak in euphemisms. There's a thing called steganography where you can implant material inside photographs. and There's a lot of ways around it. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and, and there's cultural reference, too. I mean, I, everybody probably knows the story of the, the, the Navajos that were used during Vietnam and, uh, or sorry, during World War II, to, to be, because it was like only 20 or 30 people in the world who spoke this language, maybe 100. So the, with the odds of the Germans having one were nil. So, and they were able to speak culturally to one another and, and, and use idioms, and there was no way to break that code. So you have to understand the culture. And we got caught flat-footed in 9-11. We weren't, re we weren't specializing in that. We were after the wrong people at the time. Other questions? If you were sort of giving your opinion about what the proper public policy should be regarding the things you've been talking about, what would you say it was? Um, I think that's tough. I think there should be acknowledgement of the reality of the situation rather than just lying about it. I, I think rather than saying, oh, we can't collect this, I think we can say, yep, we're collecting it. And I think we ought to draw lines based upon a shared value system and we should, we should allow people in authority to cross those lines, but if they do it for the wrong reason, we should punish them. So, for instance, they, they have um, they found that because of the, uh, the national security letters and the uh, NSI letters that they were allowed to use uh, after, um, after the Patriot Act, they found that uh, you know, in a disproportionate number of these things were being used to track ex-wives and things. So you know, they were, there was, it, was, it was being inappropriately used, even though the idea was a good idea. So I think what you do is you trust the people that you put into power, and then if they abuse the system, you punish them and you treat it as a crime and something you go to jail for. I mean, not something minor. And go right up the line and you don't, it's, you know, go, go and get the guy in charge. It's like, you know, like in Abu Ghraib when they went after the E4, you know, and, and instead of everybody else that was involved in the thing. 
go after everybody involved all the way up to the top of the FBI, and, and, and then we'll see. In other words, give law enforcement the power to do what they need to do, but hold them to a moral standard and make them accountable for their actions. That's my personal opinion. Well, this has been uh, sobering. <laughs> <laughs> It was supposed to be an upbeat. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I'm thinking that. Uh, let me let me get clear on one one thing. Sure. Uh, you said if you had access to my computer, you could help <laughs> 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 yourself. I didn't. Uh, I didn't see. I didn't have access to your computer. <laughs> okay, I guess my question is, if if that is the reality, as a, just an as, a, as an ordinary citizen who really does not like the feeling of vulnerability of of having anything that he does on a computer made available if someone has some expertise. Mm -hmm. Is there any way around that or if I should I just go back to, you know, the, the, the piece of paper and a pen and hide it under the bed? Well, <laughs> I, I wrote a book last year called Surviving Identity Theft and I had a lot of a couple chapters in it addressing exactly this point. But I can give you some very practical things. Um, assume that anything that goes on a computer can be read even if you think you deleted it. You, Without using special equipment like a sledgehammer or a really big magnet, you cannot delete information, period. Just cannot. Um, also, anything that's networked, you do not have that information anymore. It's somewhere else. So if you do a search, if Google has a copy, your ISP has a copy, intermediary routers have a copy, it's gone. And if you're in a corporate or an academic environment, not only are there copies of the data saved all over the place, but the law completely supports uh, the academic or the corporate environment doing whatever the heck they want to do with the data. So, boy, that wasn't a good answer, was it? Um, you, you, you can't. You, you can't. Use it, if you have a computer and you want private things on it, keep the computer private, keep it off the network, don't back it up in, in, in anywhere that anyone can get to the back. That's my best advice. <laughs> I think that the actual theme of this is paranoia. <laughs> you certainly succeeded in making me paranoid. But I thank you for uh, for awakening you, me. Your I, personal I, paranoia. I have not really. <laughs> um, well, can, can, can I make one last comment? Sure. I, I have a ton of computer equipment on me right now. I have an iPhone. I have a BlackBerry. I got two Kindles. I have an iPad. I don't care. So, I mean, it's only paranoia if you care. I made a decision that there really isn't that much that I care that much about anymore. And, and once I made that decision, I mean, in the sense of having it get out in public, and, and I could live with whatever it was. And once I made that decision, I mean, it was very freeing, and then I went back and started using everything in sight again. So maybe that's something you should consider. Well, that's you no help to Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you.